What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Sam Abu-Al-Samad from Navigant Research. And I'm Rebecca Lindland from Rebecca Drives. And we are all from Twit Car Reviews. So check it out because it's fun. I'm just going to keep plugging that over and over, <laughs> and over again. Well, actually, as long, as long as we're plugging stuff, before we dive into the topics, uh, let's give the listeners a couple updates. Um, I, I recently uh, moved this whole site over to a new uh, website hosting provider, which should be much more reliable than in the past. And in the process, also set up some new email addresses uh, for the show. So you can now uh, reach us at uh, feedback at wheelbearings.media. So the site is still the same address, wheelbearings.media, as it's always been. But you can email us at wheelbear- feedback at wheelbearings.media, or you can reach any of us individually at uh, Dan, Rebecca, or Sam at, wheel- at wheelbearings.media. All right. And so the correspondence will come pouring in, I hope. <laughs> Um, and because we love our, our listeners and our fans, I think actually what I would like to do is every single listener should take the time to send an email. Just hi, I'm here. Yeah. Let, <laughs> yes. let us know you exist. Right. Um, I think, and just copy all three of us and we'll just get a bunch of hello worlds. Um, exactly. Fast. And tell us where you, where you usually listen to it. Like what, what your location is. That yeah. would be fun too. Yeah. And your, and your device. And you know what, while you're at it, just give us your household income and, uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll turn it into a survey. And, and what you dr- what you drive, and yeah, yeah. And never mind. Okay, let's let's get into it. Do you like it. long walks on the beach? Oh no, that's not right. Uh, who doesn't? Wrong, wrong, <laughs> wrong site, Rebecca. Okay, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, as we head into Thanksgiving, um, which I'm ready for because it's about food. It's the most American holiday because it's about food and with the side of subjugation. But beyond that, um, <laughs> let's talk about the cars we're thankful to drive, uh, like the cars we're driving this week. What, what are you guys in? Um, Rebecca, why don't you go first? So I was in the 2020 Mazda 3 compact four-door sedan. And we have talked a lot on this program about Mazda and its price points. Uh, this one actually starts at 21500 for the very base model. That's the good. The one that I had, which is very good. The one that I had uh, was fully loaded, of course. It had all-wheel drive, which is absolutely fantastic in a compact car. And it topped out at 30645 including destination. So it really comes in at just under 29000 and change. Um I'm sorry, it comes under 30,000 without destination. I, you know, I've ragged on Mazda a lot about their price points, but I have to say that this was an absolute delight to drive. It was so solid. I really forgot that I was in a compact car a lot of times. Like it just, 
it was so solid. It was quiet. It was comfortable. And I just, I never minded hopping in it and running around and doing my errands and going, you know, doing all the crazy stuff I have to do in any given week. And it just was really Really, really nice. So kudos to Mazda. I think that they did a fantastic job. The interior is absolutely beautiful. Mine had a combination of a black base around it with these gorgeous white seats, uh, heated seats, which I am a total sucker for white leather. You can tell I don't have children. <laughs> it just, you know, it was just it was just really nice. Huge sunroof, you know, nice sized tires. I just you know, everything about it uh, really, really was good. It's uh, at 30,000 with all wheel drive. I don't think there's that many other all wheel drive compact sedans, first of all. Um, I don't think no, so. Either. Like I Sub- think Subaru is about it, really. Yeah. yeah I, would, I, I would so much I, rather I, drive the I Mazda. Know. <laughs> um, yeah. the, only, the only issue that I did have with it was and i'd be curious if you guys have have experienced this so obviously it's you know mid-november and the sun sets quite early and i had really I bad noticed that. sun glare i had really bad sun glare in the afternoons and it was a combination uh because i knew i wanted to talk about it so i really tried to observe it was it's a combination of the dash is very large and of course it's black which they always are but it's still reflected quite aggressively onto the windscreen and i don't know if it's just the slope of the windscreen but it was and it wasn't that the windshield was dirty or anything. It was just really noticeable. It was totally fine on rainy days, of which we've had many. But the couple of days that I did drive it, it had the sun glare was really pretty bad. And I didn't know if you guys have experienced that. Um, I, I drove the three, uh, I guess, about a month and a half, two months ago. And I had not noticed that at the time, uh, okay. which is not to say that, you know, it, it wouldn't be there, you know, if I tried it now, you know, under current conditions but i hadn't noticed that as a problem at the time and i also do wonder you know obviously i sit very differently than you would sit uh, if that's a problem as well but i'd love to hear from people if that, they've driven the mazda 3 if they've had if they have one or if they've had this experience at all the the a pillar does encroach a bit but you know i've had worse and again i try and sit at a balance between, you know, I typically will stretch my arm out. I'll break my wrist over the steering wheel and try and get that balance between. Well, that is proper. Uh, that is. I'm sorry. That is proper. That's how you're supposed it, to do it. It is proper. <laughs> I take my driving position very seriously. Excellent. No, nobody else does. <laughs> you know, so I try and kind of do that balance between safety and where I need to sit and you know, just getting all the ergonomics correct. But it was something that I really, you know, I observed it the first day, which happened to be a sunny day. We had several days of cloudy days in a row, so I didn't have that issue. But then it happened again the other day. And I was like, wow, this is just, you know, it was it was bad. And I don't know if it's just the combination of the type of time of year it is, you know. Was again, it all just, times of the day or, or it was, just it, like It was near pretty dusk. much all times of the day. Hmm. It was it was particularly noticeable in the late afternoon, but it was definitely, I was driving it in the morning as well. And it was definitely noticeable in the morning also. And again, it's kind of one of those things I felt, I, I felt like 
it was the angle of the windscreen. Yeah, that's, that's probably part of it is angle of the windshield and where where you are. I mean, it's like an, you're setting up kind of an optical system at that point, right? So right. Um, did you so when you wear sunglasses, are they polarized? So, you know, I have corrective lenses and they okay. have the tint to them. Maybe. And I don't I typically my sunglasses are too big and I typically don't wear them. So I just rely on the glasses that I have and then they tint down. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very fair question. And I, I've got to I've, I'll dig them out and see the next time, especially with heads up display, because I know, Sam, you have that mm-hmm. a lot, which this car had and was fantastic. Does it have a heads yeah, up display that bounces off the windshield or the one that puts a little piece of plastic up? No, it's it's the proper one that bounces off the oh, windshield, nice. and it's it's a larger display than what you get with those with the flip up uh, ones, which yes. are those are lower cost, and you know it allows manufacturers to put it into lower end vehicles, but they they're not as effective. They're not as good, but yeah. So I think the the glare on the windshield issue, uh, polar, you know, polarized filters, polarized sunglasses will probably help it, but if you have corrective lenses, uh, obviously that's that's an issue where they're not generally polarized. Um, and so that's I mean, I suffer through solar glare with with all of the, the cars to a certain degree, just uh, the time of day that I'm driving. Sure. Um, you know, if I'm driving either on the in mass the morning, pike is no. I mean, do you, I don't know. If, do you go on the mass pike? I don't do the pike, but I do 128 and I do route nine. Okay. And so I yeah. go everywhere but the pike. <laughs> well, route nine is I'm mean, parallel to the pike. So you're yeah. going to run into the same idea. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, for sure. so it's, it, yeah, some cars are worse than others. Uh, but I do find that, that polarized sunglasses help cut that glare a lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, it's probably the angle of the windshield more than just about anything. You know, the, the cars that I've had that have had sort of faster windshield angles tend to, yeah. to have that issue. And this doesn't look you know, like it's, it's, you know, very upright. No, it's definitely no, it's not, not very not. upright. It's not. And you hey, know, hey, but, Rebecca. Oh, yeah. Uh, one other question, you know, just in general about visibility, you know, this this new generation three, you know, has a fairly high belt line, and you know, you're, you know, not as tall as I am, to <laughs> put it mildly, and so I'm, I'm just curious, you know, uh, you know, in general with visibility, the one I drove, the the three that I drove had the was the hatchback, um, and you know, I, I think in the case of the uh, the sedan, it might be slightly better, but but not much. So I'm just curious what how how the visibility was for you. You know, it's so funny that you say that because I, it was it was not great, and and maybe that is because of the high belt line, but the the rear win the the rear window was okay, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I didn't feel like this car had great visibility in it i you know it's not it's not the same but like the ford escape that does have a lower belt line now there was a lot of visibility in that vehicle obviously it sits up higher as well but i never felt like i was sitting on the ground in this mazda i mean that was one of the things that i liked about it was that it has such confidence on the road that i didn't feel like i was in a tiny little compact car um but the visibility was definitely something that I struggled with a little bit. Yeah, there's definitely not as much glass area in this this current generation of three. Yeah. I mean, it's not a reason to not buy it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like that. It, and again, I, I do think that, you know, again, like how I try and sit, though, I do sit fairly high, you know, and, and it wasn't that there wasn't, it wasn't that I didn't feel like there was, uh, 
that I couldn't see at any time, but I didn't have a, I certainly didn't have that feeling of expansive spaciousness uh, and, and the rear, both the rear and the front visibility were not my favorites. With that being said, I mean, I used to have Acura Integras that had that really slit, you know, narrow slit. I've had a Fiat 500. I mean, I've had cars, a convertible. I've had cars that don't have great rear window visibility. But and that kind of because I even noticed that at all says something about that. That is definitely something that to, to consider on a test drive of the Mazda 3 to make sure you're yeah. comfortable with it. And and, you know. To be fair, uh, visibility straight out the rear on most new cars has become significantly compromised because they tend to have taller rear decks, uh, you know, that very, you know, in most cases, you know, that sloped rear glass. And so the the vertical field of view through that rear window tends to be fairly limited. And now, you know, in modern cars, you also have rear seat headrests, which also significantly reduces it. And in the case of the three, you know, the, this new generation three, while it's a great looking car, it does have a higher, higher belt line. And in, on the hatchback in particular, you know, it really sweeps up uh, that belt line, the rear, gla- the on the rear doors, the gla- the sheet metal sweeps up a lot more towards the back edge of the door. Whereas in the, in the sedan, it kind of, the bottom edge of the glass tends to stay, you know, more along a straight line all the way right. sweeping it back into the rear, into line. the trunk lid. Yeah. Yeah. It stays and along the belt line as opposed to sweeping so, up. Yeah. So in the sedan, you know, the C pillars are not as substantial as they are on the hatchback. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, people, I mean, but, people like feeling cocooned like that too. They, they feel safer in the, and, and. You know, for side impact, it's better uh, it, or somewhat easier. Yeah, yeah I, I don't I don't agree. That's debatable. Uh, yeah, I think there's was, a there's a compromise. That was at least the explanation for some of the high belt line was if you have metal there instead of glass, it's it's easier to pass those side impact tests. Um, mm. but it, that may not be so, but it seemed good to me who is not a, you know, a crash engineer. Yeah, I, I, I would say, you know, pure, purely from a, a mechanical standpoint, that's that's probably true. It, you know, the more sheet metal you have there as opposed to glass, you know, it, it is going to tend probably it's probably going to be easier to pass the side impact test. Yeah. And, and- um, that said, you know, you're you're also compromising on. On safety, you know, visibility is a significant impact on safety. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. And, I'd and rather so, be able to see. so, you know, if you, if you can't see around you, you know, then, you know, you're more likely to hit something because simply because you can't see it. It's a, it's a trap. Uh, it's a trap. It's a scam. You see, here's what's going on. They're taking away the windows from us so they can sell us sensor packages. <laughs> That's what's going on. That's you don't it. need to look. You don't need to see out the windows. Don't trust your eye, your lying eyes and ears. Look at the light on the A-pillar. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the light. <laughs> right, it's just a thought. But, you know, that psychological feeling of being sort of like snuggled up in this like, uh, you know, metal envelope, I guess, is something that appeals to some people. It drives me bonkers because I, I, you know, I like to yeah. see out of the car. Well, well, and I, it also is design wise, you know, the the high belt line, narrow greenhouse. You know, we've all written those words dozens of times. You know, that's the look and it's a cool look, but it doesn't help visibility. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that, you know, that is a trend that's starting to starting to reverse a little bit, at least with some manufacturers. And I think, you know, over the coming years, we'll, we'll probably see, you know, a little bit more balance there between the glass and sheet metal 
uh, or a little bit better balance between glass and sheet metal. You know, as you mentioned, Rebecca, the the new Escape and the uh, the Corsair. Uh, Lincoln Corsair, you know, they have definitely moved towards a lower belt line. And I think we're going we're gonna to start seeing other manufacturers do that as well. Yeah. And they've done it in such a way that it doesn't compromise the design. I mean, I think that both, you know, both the Escape and the Corsair are really nice looking vehicles. So, you know, every little centimeter or millimeter counts. And so I think they've done a nice job of, of just bringing the belt line down a little bit and still having that that cocoon type of feel. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't ever remember feeling unsafe or feeling exposed when I was driving both of those vehicles. So I, you know, I think it's, I think that's, it's a, it's a balance. It's kind of the opposite of driving my car, as you know, Rebecca. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Half of your body is out of your car. (laughs) Yeah, yes, exactly. There's no cocoon feeling in my, in my first generation Miata. No, you know, and it's, it's interesting what you get used to because one of the sort of like, most terrifying ex- automotive experiences I've ever had was riding in a uh, a tea bucket, a custom tea bucket. It it was it's really cool. It was built on a chopped down Model A frame, and it had a Mazda twelve A rotary, and it was very small. The body was just one ply of fiberglass, <laughs> <laughs> and and we're you know we're in Worcester for the car show, and so that's that's fine, but you. You get used to it really quick and you just like you ride around in it and you feel like, yeah, this thing is going to contain me. But if you hit anything, you're you're airborne. There are no, no seat belts. The, I think the windshield might have been plate glass at that time. So the safety glass. So uh, have you ever have awesome. you ever driven a, a Wrangler with the doors off? Yes, it's actually pretty good with the doors off, but it, it you feel very vulnerable. Oh, except, except for the turbulence. Yeah, there's a lot of wind turbulence around around the, the sides there when you take the doors off because of that, you know, flat windshield and and just the way the thing is shaped, you know, the 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 wind just swirls around in the cabin when you take those doors off. Yeah, it, it well, and that's like that's why it's so great in the summer, you know, and they they make like pegs that you can stick your foot just outside of the body, mm-hmm. <laughs> just like just like a motorcycle. Yeah, it's just like. It fits with the Wrangler crowd, I suppose, but it's just kind of funny. And then you think about, again, if anything happens, like your foot and your ankle and probably like the whole lower part of your leg below the knee is is the first mm-hmm. to go. So yep. enjoy it while you've got it. <laughs> Fortunately, Wranglers are a lot have a, a much reduced uh, predilection to rolling over than they used to. Yeah, that's that's true. They're, they're not unstable at all now. No. It's the drivers. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Let's, what else do we need to say about the Mazda 3 while we're, we're on the subject? Did we, because uh, we got a little off point, but overall, yeah. you know, what did you think of the It was, um, all, the it was all related, though. It was all, it's some, well, there's a common thread. Um, yeah. the, the infotainment to me is, is sort of a stumbling block for Mazda because it's kind of like iDrive, but it's kind of not. It's not a touchscreen. Yeah. I definitely had some interface. I, I described it as clumsy in my review. Uh, and then Android Auto, sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. It was very arbitrary. Like I was so pleased because the first time I dialed up, I was like, OK, good. Here it is. I plugged it in, got everything up and running, put down my phone and bam, it was gone. And I could never get it back for like three days. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it, it was back, back again. I'm like, oh, great. OK, I guess we're friends again and you know what you know what i've found on a number of cars um with with android auto is the the uh, usb connections tend to be somewhat flaky okay yeah you know uh, sometimes if i swap out to a different usb cable it works just fine 
I do know that. But the thing is that that it worked perfectly. Like it was. Oh, I know. I've had the, I've had exactly the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, you know, where sudden, it, it works works absolutely perfectly, and then all of a sudden, you know, even as you're driving along, you know, the Android Auto screen will go away. Yes. And the the only way to get it back is to unplug and plug back in, you know, or sometimes even then it doesn't come back. And you know, if you if you've got a cable that you've been using for a while, especially in the car where it's more likely to get wound up into weird, you know, bent, you know, and and uh, you know some of the the uh, the wires inside the cable may get uh, may get fractured. Sure, um, it it tends it's tends to be much less stable, and that's why I'm looking forward to the onset of vehicles that have uh, wireless support for for both CarPlay and Android Auto, uh, and those are starting to come to market now, including the uh, uh, the Escape and the Corsair. Yeah, that will be really nice. So I definitely had some issues with that. I listened to a lot of Billy Joel channel because I just couldn't be bothered to figure out how to change it. <laughs> and then, and then Every I did... version of Goodnight Saigon ever recorded. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then uh, I did eventually go through the several steps to do that. I, I found, you know, and again, this is a little bit of an ergonomics. I found that the the center console where they have the dial and where the buttons are, I found it, it was, again, this is because of how I sit, but it it sat really far back for me. Like I had to, it's funny, I'm actually making the motion now. Like I had to like physically like move my arm back, move my elbow back in between the seats because it was just set kind of far back uh, for me. And you know, it was just uncomfortable and I had to look down a lot to see it. Now, with that being said, I loved the heads up display and I loved the fact that it gave directions and it gave signage and my speed. So I didn't have to look down a lot, thankfully. But when I did, it was not a comfortable reach for me. When you say look down, you mean look down for the the dial or right for the, for the dial and the cluster. buttons and stuff, and you know whether I wanted to go to home or get the map back up or you know I I literally like I changed the radio channel like twice because it was so annoying. So, but yeah, you can, well, I think I think that's you can one of those your things favorites when, in and stuff. You know, like you can personalize it. So yeah, well, and I think that's one of those things where you know once you once you've spent a little more time with it and get accustomed to the the what those four buttons around the dial are you, you it's really something you can do without looking at it it is you know, it is because for it's, sure. it's directly you know that dial is directly behind the shift lever you know so i mean you drop your hand down there yeah i, I mean in your case you know it i i can i can understand you know where uh just because of your seating position it might ergonomically it might be a little bit further back than is comfortable for you but in general um you know just being able to drop your hand down on it and twist and push and pull on, on that dial and tap those buttons, you eventually, you, you will, you know, you'll know which, which of those four buttons are, which ones, you know, uh, you know, the bottom left is the, uh, um, is the audio, um, or is the back button. Is the back um, button. The top yeah. left is the navigation. The one on right. the right bottom, I think is home. Yeah. And the one so, on the top right is audio. Right. So one, once you get used to those, and that's from memory. You, you can, like, yeah. I mean, you can you can do that without without looking at it, you know, and just glance over at the screen, you right. know, and manipulate the stuff fairly quickly. And right. that's the thing I like about those those rotary control systems, 
is that you can do that, you know, without it, does, it takes once you once you remember where the button positions are, it takes less cognitive load than actually aiming for a touch target on the screen. <laughs> I knew you were going to get that in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think. As with any infotainment system, it's always a matter of getting used to it. And, yeah. you know, I did know, you know, I took the time to load in favorite so that I didn't have to go through that motions of trying to, you know, when I went to change the music and stuff. But it's, again, as anything, you have to spend the time with the infotainment system to maximize it and to get used to it. There are others, though, that are I think are a little bit more intuitive to use. And so that would be my only thing. But it's not something that I got used to it after a while. And again, it's none of these things are reasons not to buy this vehicle. It's such a good it's such a good small car that I would absolutely tell people to put it on their shopping list. Yeah. So there's it's there's so many good things about it. I was going to say, like, okay, we've given we've given plenty of of oversight on sort of the stuff that's a little bit, you know, that that you should you should see that you can live with. But um, overall, the reasons to buy the vehicle are like, you know, it looks great. It's pretty comfortable. Right. It's uh, seems luxurious. It's quiet. It's quiet. It's steady. I love the fact that it has all wheel drive to it. It doesn't feel like an econo box at all. I mean, for under 30,000, you know, and again, this one is all dolled up. So you can definitely get them for less. And so, you know, for under 30,000, I think that's it's a really, really good vehicle. I, you know, it's just it's something that you don't necessarily need to have absolutely everything in it. So, uh, you know, I think it's something that that every everybody can get used to, you know, all the all the stuff that we're talking about is is addressable in many ways. But, you know, I'm also not going to just sit there and be a fangirl and say this is the perfect vehicle. You know, I'm going to address what some of the concerns that I had. But, you know, it's got a two point five liter four cylinder engine that was really peppy. The only thing I didn't like when I put it in sport mode. I just found it made the engine rev louder and noisier, and I didn't find it appealing. Okay. I can can agree with that. So, you know, it didn't seem to really do much for me. So I kept it just in general. I I didn't put it in. I I, I put it in sport several times trying to like it. (laughs) 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 It just it didn't. Yeah. It it wasn't. It wasn't for me. But overall, it's great. Sport can be like that in a lot of cars. You can just be like, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, well, now that we've had a thorough uh, winding thesis on all things small car. Oh, how's the trunk? Is the trunk decent? The trunk is pretty good, actually. Yeah, no, the trunk is really good. Uh, I had to we're, we're clearing out my mom's house. And so I had some electronics and stuff to bring to Goodwill. And and it was super easy. And, you know, it had it had a good amount of space to it for sure. The only thing that was annoying, and this is probably a setting, I went when you unlock all the doors, the trunk does not unlock as well. So the number of times that I walked up to the unlocked car thinking the trunk would unlock as well was annoying. And so the, and that, again, is probably just a setting on there. But the size of the trunk itself was great. Yeah. And if it's not quite enough for you, then, you know, then opt for the hatchback, which, you know, as always, you know, is more has more utility than any, especially in small cars, has more utility than sedans. Yeah. And I I think the hatchback is is a fantastic option, you know, for those people that don't want to have an SUV. I 
go up, be all over that hatch. I think it's really cool. And while we're on the topic of, of Mazda, I think uh, we're driving the CX-30, the, the 2026-30 in a couple of weeks in California. Yep. I'll be there uh, on the first wave. All yes. Right. So we'll be looking forward to that. So you can tell us uh, about the infotainment and the seating position and the... Um, the visibility, whether it measures up to this car, because it's basically like a crossover version of this car, right? It, it, it is, yeah. Uh, I actually uh, spent some time um, this week at the LA Auto Show talking with the uh, program manager for the Mos- for the CX-30. And, uh, you know, we talk- and, and we can get into that a little more next time after uh, Rebecca and I have had a chance to drive it. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it is, you know, very heavily derived from the CX-3. Excellent. That, that that bodes well. Uh, or from the from the three, I mean, not the CX three, yeah. just the three. Um, yeah, because the interior, you know, the interior on this vehicle is really really nice, and the switches, the toggles, all that had a really really nice feel to it. the The leather dash was beautiful. Nice top stitching. Like there's just again, there's just really nice premium features. I will say that it had a USB in the front and a wireless charging pad. But then in the back, I was a little surprised there aren't any USBs in the center console in the back. Again, it's a four, a five seat car that you probably don't have a lot of people in the back, but it was a lot of cars have that now. So I was a little surprised that it didn't have that. That would be a nice ad in the future. Yeah. And hey, they got to save money somewhere, right? If you, if exactly. you want the yes. USBs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's stay with Mazda, Sam, because you're driving the uh, the 2006, uh, 2019, the 2016, uh, 2019 Mazda 6 Signature. Yeah. So pretty much everything that uh, we, ju- you know, most most of what we just said about the three really applies to the Mazda 6 as well. Um, oh, we're but, done. You know, in, 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 a, in a, you know, in a slightly larger package, uh, you know, it's, you know, again, you know, great styling, really nice interior. Uh, you know, it, it feels very premium. Uh, you know, it's, it is one of my favorite midsize sedans, uh, you know, midsize mainstream sedans. Uh, you know, the signature, you know, was new for 2019. We actually talked about it. I drove it earlier this year and we talked about it then. So I'm not going to, you know, uh, repeat too much of that, but the signature comes with the, uh, the turbocharged version of the 2.5 liter, uh, that has 227 horsepower and 310 foot pounds of torque. Uh, it's front wheel drive only, no all wheel drive, um, you know, but it does have, you know, most of what, else, you know, the other stuff that you will find on the three. Uh, and uh, then, um, you know, it, that extra rear seat leg room, uh, a little bit more headroom in the back, uh, slightly bigger trunk. But, you know, aside from that, you know, it's the same kind of feel that you get in a three, just extended and expanded, you know, and I had the chance last year to, to drive one of these during the Mama Spring Rally at Road America, you know, where you get to really thrash it. And, you know, I mean, for, for a front wheel drive, you know, midsize sedan, you know, I mean, this thing has some fantastic driving dynamics. It feels really good, you know, and in this case, you know, with the sport mode, you know, you do get a little bit more because it is a more powerful engine. You do, you know, get a little bit more of that feel. It's not just, you know, holding the the gears longer and revving higher before it shifts and making more noise, you know, it actually, you know, has some extra performance that that you get from that. But overall, you know, the same kinds of themes that you get, you know, from any Mazda car, any modern Mazda car are there. And, you know, you get a lot of, you know, the same kind of equipment, 
um, with um, you know the the driver assist features. The lane keeping assist that Mazda has on the six is not great. It's not particularly effective. You know, it's fine as more as a lane departure warning system. It doesn't really do much to to really try to intervene to actually keep you in the lane. It's certainly not a, a lane centering system. But the adaptive cruise control works well. The blind spot monitoring uh, is all there. You know, you have really nice Napa leather covered seats. Um, and it's just, you know, it's just a really lovely place to spend time. You know, if you've got to, if you've got to do a lot of driving, you know, this is a, a great vehicle to do it in. What's the price point on it? Uh, this one, you know, this is the loaded one. It has mm-hmm. everything, you know, basically you can't add anything else to this, you know, including delivery charge. It came to 36520 Oh, uh, that's not which, bad. Yeah. I mean, you know, compared to, you know, a loaded Camry or a Cord or, or even a fusion, you know, it's it's in that same ballpark. They're all in that mid thirties price range. So you know, it's not cheap, but it's you know, it, you can you can certainly get uh, you know a Mazda six in one of the lower trim levels. You know, in the mid twenty thousands range. Right. Uh, you know, it's 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 you know, you're not going to get the le- the Napa leather seats and, and the turbo engine, but you know, aside from that, you know, most of the rest of the char- basic characteristics of this, even in base trim levels, you know, Mazda you know, really does a great job with their interiors. Uh, and, you know, it's it's just a great, great place to spend time. You know, it, it feels it feels much more premium than its price point would suggest. That's the that's the Mazda trick. And it, it looks great, too. You know, the, the six mm-hmm. especially oh, yeah. is elegant. Yeah, you know, it's, a, that, that it's little, a fantastic looking car. Yeah, that, the bit of length lets them sort of stretch out the lines. You know, the three looks great, but the six really, because it's a little longer, it really the the styling develops a little better and they're just right and beautiful right and and the six you know the six is nearing the end of its current life cycle mm. um you know so it still has the kind of the earlier iteration of mazda's kodo design theme uh so you've got you know a little more sharper creases uh you know compared to what you see on the three the three they've kind of softened it you know the the, the theme that they talked about last year when they first showed the three you know was this idea of you know a pebble you know, in a stream, you know, the water's been running over for for many years and smoothing it out. So taking, you know, kind of those same kinds of themes and evolving it further. And I'll be really fascinated to see what they do with the next generation six, you know, as they bring this, this updated version of this design language to that car uh, and apply what they've done with the three, you know, to that slightly larger form factor. Well, we've covered Mazda pretty comprehensively now. I mean, I think it's like most of their lineup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, not 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 so much anymore. I mean, you know, if they're going to have, they're now going to be up to four SUVs with the addition of the CX thirty, and you know, the the CX five already accounts for more than half of all Mazda sales in the U.S. Yeah, that was wow. that's a good one too. I like that. Yeah, a lot. that is. Yeah. I do wonder, you know, how successful they've been trying to sort of move up scale. I mean, I like the fact that they're speaking with the product first uh but you know consideration and and such i uh, you know continues to <coughs> i think be a an ongoing challenge but the product certainly is there uh and and really nice yeah i think i i would say that you know there may be um 
reconsidering the pace at which they try to move upscale. Mm. Um, you know, when you look at the pricing, that, you know, one of the things this week at the Ali Auto Show, they announced the, the U.S. pricing for the CX-30, uh, which starts at uh, about $23,000. Oh, they've got twenty one uh, nine. On the site. Well, with with delivery. Okay. Just on a slight tangent here, I think it's time for all manufacturers to just stop ca- calling out the MSRP without delivery. If you cannot option, you know, if you cannot take the option to take your take delivery somewhere where you don't have to pay for it, just include it in the MSRP because it's not an it's not an optional extra. Right. It is. It is something you absolutely. It's a mandatory fee that you must pay. So just include it. You mean you can't you go know, to Hiroshima so, and get your Mazda for for you know, no. no delivery? Uh, sadly, <laughs> sadly, you cannot. So twenty, you know, twenty three thousand, including delivery, which you know for uh, a compact crossover like that is actually you know not an unreasonable price, especially you know when you consider that it like other Mazdas, you know, it does have you know a more premium feeling interior than much of its competitive class. And so, you know, I, th- I think that they are, at least with the CX-30, they're, they're trying to, and I think, you know, with the, with the three as well, I think they tried to hold the line on pricing, you know, try to, to give it that premium feel, you know, but not go overboard on the, on the pricing because, you know, even, you know, the, the all wheel drive sedan that you drove, Rebecca, you know, 31,000, you know, is, is not bad. You know, that's a, that's a perfectly reasonable price, I think, for what you're getting. Right. For, for the content and the quality and the capability, I agree with you. It's still it's still a lot. We don't want to dismiss that. But for yeah. the, for what you're getting, there's a good value story there. Um, now, when I'm looking at the Mazda site, one of the things and when we're going on a low grade rant about manufacturers, <laughs> I'm curious because, you know, it there seems to be a lot of 20 like on the Mazda site, the Mazda CX-3 and the Mazda CX-5 you can still build a 2018 on their site and then 2019 and they don't have some cars have 2020, but not others. But there's there's a three there's three different model years hey, we available got, on their website. We've got and inventory I, to move. I, I'm just I, I find this is fascinating. Well, it's, it's, it's almost yeah, 2020. It's, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's not unusual, you know, on most manufacturers websites, you know, you'll usually find a link to previous model years. You know where you can build at least at least the you know the one year earlier model because they often do have still have some inventory in stock. Um, and the other thing I've been noticing, you know, especially in the past year, is many of these manufacturers are you know the the twenty twenty you know, or the new model years, the new model year models are actually coming in many cases not you know in some cases they're coming earlier, in right. some cases they're actually coming later. Um, you know so. You know the um, you know the uh, the 2020 um, uh, Nissan Sentra, you know, was just launched. You know, it's you know almost the end of November now. They just launched it this week in L.A., and you know it'll be going on sale early in the year. Right. And you know, in the past, typically anything that went on sale after the first of January usually took up the next model year. But now that's often not the case. They're often Starting, you know, with the, you know, even if it's in the middle of the model year like that, they're they're starting with the with the current model year. Do we know why that's happening? I mean, did certification um, change or something? Like, it's just something no. that's really curious to me. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm not really sure. I haven't I haven't really delved into it much. You know, I, I don't think there's any real certification changes. You know, in a lot of yeah. cases, it's just kind of uh, arbitrary decision making. 
Well, I think part it, it it was brought to my attention when I was doing this project that I was embroiled in the last couple of weeks where I was looking at literally 80 different models. And it just struck me that how many 2019s I was still writing about because that's what was available on the website. And and then when I'm as we're talking about Mazda this morning, there's I'm just looking at that. So anyway, it was just an observation. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's funny. You know, this is actually um this kind of move away from for some to some degree from the traditional model year designations is actually something that was kind of started by tesla because you know, tesla has never really stuck with the the usual model year designations you know they <clears throat> they do it for for epa certification purposes you know that's that's something that's required right but Beyond that, you know, in their marketing, their advertising, you know, on their website, you'll never see model year designations. It's just whatever they happen to be building at that particular moment, you know, and they because they they don't hold off until a new model year to introduce new stuff. You know, they will roll out changes whenever they feel like it's ready, whether it's actually ready or not is another story. But they, <laughs> they roll out change changes, you know, on the fly. And so the, the model year designations don't mean as much there. And. Traditional manufacturers aren't haven't gone to that degree, but they are being a little more fluid in what you know what a given model year you know when a given model year starts or finishes. We'll speak and and, and we'll we'll circle back to Tesla. But Dan, what are you driving? Yeah, and so <laughs> I had the um, twenty twenty GMC Sierra AT four with the Carbon Pro package and the off road performance package or some stuff. Anyway, it was a sixty seven thousand dollar. Uh, 1500, <laughs> which seems like a lot of money for a 1500, but I understand that people are spending lots on pickups. Um, and I really want to know why people seem to think that the GMC and, and Chevrolet pickups are not as good as, uh, say the Ram and the Ford pickups. Cause those two seem to be really gunning for number one. Number one, obviously is just Ford in terms of overall sales. Although there's, there's an argument to be made there, but, um, also Ram seems to be duking it out with, with GMC for, uh, Chevrolet or Chevrolet for the number two slot. Um, and I, I can understand some of the criticism, but this is a really good pickup truck. Yeah. But did you borrow a front end loader and drop a load of cinder blocks into the bed <laughs> to see if it would scratch the carbon fiber bed? No, I I did not. <laughs> um, I then you didn't really test it, right? I will say that <laughs> in terms of doing truck stuff, I did very little truck stuff. But um, because this is a very tarted up sixty seven thousand dollar fifteen hundred with red tow hooks and um all the goodies and stuff i probably drove it the way i see most of these very fancy 1500s being <laughs> used which is not to do truck stuff and it's right. basically as a commuter car and and in that respect it is just it's a lovely truck to drive what i liked about it was uh that it, it just it drives like all the teams spoke to each other on a regular basis <laughs> like yeah well, it does I uh, can't remember. Did you say this was a Denali? No, it's the AT4. So it's the mid-level okay. trim. Um, had okay. the 6.2 liter V8 though, which and the 10-speed auto, which I think is is probably one of the biggest reasons to like it. Uh, did it have the multi-pro tailgate? Yes, it did. Good. Um, okay. 
and it, that so first of all small blocks are lovely this is the loveliest example of a small block like if it, it, one of the things <laughs> i've always loved about small blocks is that just sort of like wave of sort of competent quiet torque that you always get even the the ones that were choked by emissions stuff and had like 10 horsepower they always had this sort of like you could waft along on the hey, torque they, right they never got below 100 100 horsepower never below 100 excellent all all eight cylinders and <laughs> 300 well, actually, inches. they never get they never got below 100 horsepower from the factory for a time. They, <laughs> they did uh, after a while get below well below 100 horsepower in the real world because they had a problem with the, uh, the heat treating on the camshafts. Yeah, they'd wipe and the cams. Yeah, we, yeah we, we had an 82 Malibu with a 4.4 liter V. Oh, you had the 260. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. And um, after a while, it started running really bad. Mm. And, you know, I pulled the spark plugs and I was checking compression and I realized that um, the four middle cylinders weren't doing anything and i found out that <laughs> the way they treat the the camshafts they the way they heat treat the camshafts they would bring the heat treat probes in from the ends and and spin it up and heat it and it didn't always get completely hot in the middle so they were soft and so the cam lobes would eventually wear off they were and so i pulled the i pulled the cam out of this thing and the four center lobes were completely round the circles there was no yeah. lobes at all so you had a half-made camshaft literally yeah. Well, I had I had cylinder deactivation before it was popular. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it was it was just permanent. Well, you know, and see, that's an opportunity for an upgrade. Uh, get yourself a nice like high lift cam with make it make it uh, idle crappy. Um, but no, this this V eight and ten speed transmission works so well together. They're so strong and competent, and I. I drove gently just to see what I could get out of it. And, and gently doesn't mean like being a traffic hazard. Um, it means sort of limiting it to like, you know, 65 on the highway and stuff. Uh, it, I got it up to 20 miles per gallon combined, which I was pretty impressed with. That. Did you say this was the 5.3 or the 6.2? 6.2. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's good, man. Uh, I, yeah. It has stop start. Um you know, you spend more time in stop and go traffic. Obviously, your average drops. But uh, if you drive it sort of in a relaxed fashion, it returns pretty decent fuel economy. Uh, and it's a good truck for driving in that relaxed fashion because it, it tends to just reward you. It, it, it All the controls feel really good. You know, the the steering, the brakes, the, the accelerator, everything works together. You know, one of the things I don't like about the, the Fords is they've got that real squishy EcoBoost um, throttle response where it's you get that real strong hit of turbo torque and you're constantly like making adjustments where this this one seems a lot more linear because it's not a turbocharged engine and and it works really well with its 10 speed auto so i just it was just great to to drive from a driving perspective it drove really well and it was quiet and it rode pretty well so the thing it's in it's two-thirds of a tahoe <laughs> <laughs> so it's like or two thirds of a, a suburban, really. Uh, and I was like, well, I, OK, I, I could be down with this or um, and GMC. I guess it's Yukon. So um, I, I liked all that. I liked a lot of the thoughtful touches around the interior. The infotainment was was decent. Um, you know, the controls were good, uh, except for, you know, some of the climate controls were a little crappy where they were sort of they they gang functions on a button. But other than that, you know, it was just a really easy truck to operate and to use and very, very good to drive. Um, and I, I feel like if you were to load it up with a trailer and, and you know, take a long, long haul with it. Great. Uh, the the off road stuff kind of is a little confusing here 
because all it really does is it adds tires that make some noise and limit your traction. Um, so your braking distance gets longer, your cornering gets a little bit worse, and your steering accuracy is, is not as good. And it's just such a long truck. I, yeah, I guess it can go off road, but I I feel like it's it's probably going to be out of its element a lot sooner than something like a Raptor, um, or the the um, the Ram. What's the Ram? The Power. The Rebel. No, the Rebel. Yeah. Um, and you know those two are probably a little bit more equipped. Although it does have a suspension lift with the off road package, it just it seemed maybe less in character. Um, but again, you know, not taking it off road. I, I it's, it, I'm sure that stuff probably helps, but my fear is always like, yeah, it'll help me get stuck like deeper in the woods. So it's a more expensive. Act, actually, you'd, you'd be surprised how good some of these big trucks are. As long as wherever you're going, you know, has enough width for the truck to fit through. These things are surprisingly capable off road. I mean, I, I haven't driven the Sierra uh, off road, but you know, I've driven the, the Rebel and the um, and in the past, you know, some of the Fords on, on off-road courses, and they can actually handle a surprising amount. You know, granted, you know, compared to, you know, a short, a two-door Wrangler, you know, you're not going to be able, you're not going to have the same kind of breakover height you would with those. Um, you know, and certainly, you know, again, as I said, the width is going to be a limiting factor. But overall, you know, these things can go pretty much anywhere. Huh. Well, I mean, I, I guess that's fair. Um, it, it's just... I so this is where I, I I walk away kind of puzzled because I, I thought that it was it's a really nice package and yes it's expensive but the, the what makes it really nice is the basic goodness of the truck so you don't have to buy the the fancy Sierra to get a pretty decent truck and it, you know the the sort of most lasting impression was how light on its feet it felt where the Ram feels just like it you're driving the titanic it just feels so heavy and it is <laughs> um, yeah i think the gm gm products tend to drive smaller than they are they there's just something they they've done a really good job on that aspect of it and you don't feel yeah, like you're and, hauling a truck around with you yeah and you know for for some of the the moaning that you know that people have done about you know perhaps the quality, especially on the Silverado, maybe less so on the on the Sierra, but the the quality of the interior materials, things like that. Um, you know, one thing that GM has done a really good job at over the last six or seven years is reducing the weight of their vehicles. You know, they've done a lot of work. Yeah, and and that's without you know taking the Ford path of resorting to an all aluminum body. You know, they've they've done some very smart. Uh, use of mixed material architectures, you know, using various grades of steels and aluminums and, and in the case of this particular truck, carbon fiber yep. uh, for the bed. You know, it's uh, GM's done a lot of great stuff there, you know, to actually make it lighter. So not not only does it feel like it's driving lighter, it actually is lighter than the other trucks. Yeah, and, or and that, that not, pays off. Not so much lighter than the than the Ford. The Ford it's a, it's close to the same weight as the Ford even without using all aluminum. Right. And that was the joke, right? Was that uh, the Ford had to go to aluminum to get it as light as the Chevy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it really like that pays off. The, the, the Ford, the, the Ford F-Series feels kind of like loose fit and just that's not a truck I like. 
um, the interior and those trucks are cheap too. Um, the interior here was a little harder to get a read on. And, and I, I tried to really examine materials. It, it probably is the area where it doesn't compare as well to Ram, which is the, they're the class leader. They have the nicest cabins. Um, this is all black. So I think that hides some of the, the contrast and materials quality. Um, it had leather for the seats with some, some, you know, highlight trim on it. Um, but the lower dash and, and parts of the door panels probably aren't as nice as you're going to find in, in, uh, Ram. I think it's competitive in the class though. And if, if you, if you want to get picky about it for your $67,000, it probably feels more like a 40 something thousand dollar interior. But again, that's the same kind of thing you get in the Fords, even with their super duper trim that goes way, way, way up uh, above $70,000. Well, um, and you always have to balance the work truck aspect of this because you don't want somebody to come in and say, I can't I can't use this truck for work because it's too nice. Yeah. You know what I, I mean? Like so that I agree the materials are there's always that you you need to have a certain amount of durability to these materials in because it's still at the end of the day is a pickup truck. Yeah. And, and you know, styling wise, I think it's very handsome. Uh, so it's a, it, it surprised me because I came at it like, well, these are the the trucks that everybody's saying are, are not as good. They're, they're the trucks that are lagging the competition. I don't think that's true. Um, I think the F-Series sort of claims its sales crown through a variety of sleight of hand. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a very competitive market. All the trucks are good. These don't well, feel G, I mean, any GM less solid. Trucks, the volume is split between the GMC and Chevy right. brands. And so that's always but one he, of the arguments. Right. And, you know, in the past, there have been times when the combined sales of GMC and Chevrolet actually did exceed Ford. Uh, but that's not true today. Yeah. And well, and Ford also has the the benefit of um, they really, really know the fleet business. They have that. They're so oh, yeah. good at that. If they need to sell a few, they'll sell a few to, to maintain that position. And, and they're really good at what they do. And the F-Series is, is a good truck. Uh, none of the trucks are bad. Uh, you know, like I said, they all feel solid. I You kind of well, gl- your eyes glaze over when you read the, the description of the frame. You're like, yeah. <laughs> Whatever, it's a railroad bridge. Who cares? <laughs> uh, but the other thing I'm wondering with, with the volume, you know, Ram is very clever because they still have the classic available. And there's an estimate of like 30 percent of their sales are that classic. And so but they don't separate it out. It's all one volume number. Yeah. And oh, boy, I bet they're willing to deal on that. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. Well, those, I mean, those sell primarily, you know, as with Ford, you know, they sell primarily the classics to to fleets and commercial customers. Yeah, and, and again, it's like, got a bench seat, which I think is awesome. They're not, not <laughs> none of this is all down to personal preference. None of these trucks are inherently bad. I, I prefer the 6.2 here to the turbocharged V6 in the in the Ford. But again, you, a, you're, you, I think you're paying a premium for that engine. And B, I for the V six or the V eight for the V eight, um, and I, or, not or necessarily the six point two anyway. Um, I just I just think at a certain point, the Ford is like the EcoBoost is is going to out tow and out like it just that the turbos really do help you when it comes to work. Um, they're also going to be thirsty as a bastard though. <laughs> like your fuel economy well, can go. You know the, the, the thing. You know, the thing about the, the towing, you know, 
you'll see these three companies, you know, go back and forth, you know, on their claims on who has the the highest tow rating, you know, and you know the reality is, you know, if you can tow eleven thousand five hundred pounds or twelve thousand pounds or twelve thousand two hundred pounds, does it really make that much difference? No, you don't want to. You don't no. want to tow one of these it's, things out at the edge of their capabilities. It's a pissing contest between yeah. the three of them. You know, it's, um, but the, you know the the six point two has four hundred and twenty horsepower. It can tow up to ninety four hundred pounds. Um, they say that actually it gets twenty miles per gallon on the highway. So I can confirm that on the highway you can achieve twenty miles per gallon. Um, and it starts at 50,000. So 50,000 plus 7,000 of options actually seems like not that abusive for the, uh, <laughs> the truck buyer. <laughs> um, seems like a pretty, pretty solid deal. Um, and it was a good place to spend time. I, I liked it quite a bit. Uh, you know, if we're talking just the, um, what is it? The, the, the sybaritic qualities of the truck. <laughs> It's just a nice luxury so what? car. Uh, well, so if you're a Sybarite, you, um, it's a, I think it's a David E. Davis word, uh, but it's just ba- it basically like the luxurious environment. Um, the more it's a lovely truck, more luxurious it is, the more super. <laughs> I, I just I like I like uh, GMC's approach and, and like GM's approach. You know, instead of having like uh, sort of like fold down steps on the on the side of the bumper, they just cut a hole in it. <laughs> stuck a step in there yeah they just mold mold it right into the bumper itself yeah it seems like there's a lot of those little thoughts that are like okay we could we could just do it this way which is a little bit and and every truck manufacturer is going to have their own little bit of clever so speaking of those those little thoughts did you actually try playing around with that uh multi-pro tailgate i i did whatever it is they call it it was it was a little i was a little confused by it just like what (laughs) Like this, okay. This one goes down. This one goes like just the different configurations. It's like a Swiss Army knife. You know, you fold out all the mm-hmm. blades. And you're like, what am I going to do with it? I think there's six different positions you can use. Yeah, they need to put like a, a well, I'm sure there's a guide in the glove compartment. Which yeah, I, well, I think cool, you know, one, I one like of the it. issues I've it, it is, but one of the issues I've seen with it is um, in some cases, you know, if you actually have a trailer hooked up. It you know can interfere with the trailer. You know, if you drop down like the oh the step the the step part of it, the middle section of it, um, you know, it'll hit the trailer hitch. Yeah. Um, so you have to be careful of things like that. Um, but you know, I mean, otherwise I think it's, I think it's generally a good idea. Of course it does add complexity and cost but, to the thing. But which you don't is have to buy it. No, you don't. So, but you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's part of that, you know, 11,000 or almost $12,000 carbon pro package on the AT4 that also includes the, the carbon fiber bed and I'd be, you know, it's interesting that they don't break out the cost of that carbon fiber bed. I'd be curious to know how much that by itself costs. Do you think that that carbon fiber bed is, is significantly more expensive than, well, yeah, I guess it is significantly more expensive. Oh yeah. Than a it's, steel it's, bed. it's, it's, oh yeah. It's, it's way more expensive than a stamp steel bed. Uh, it saves about 70 pounds. I think it was 69 pounds or something that they said. Um, and you know, of course it's never going to rust. And it, it's, an, you know, they, they've done some interesting manufacturing techniques with that. You know, it's actually made in the same way as they do um, sheet molding compound body panels mm-hmm. for Corvettes, the SMC body panels. So it's not done in the traditional layup approach that they, has been done for carbon fiber in the past. Is it claved? So like, do they do it under pressure? No, no, it's not. Huh. Interesting. So it's, yeah, so that, that brings the cost down substantially. Um, and this is the first... Um, you know, high volume application 
or you know, comparatively high volume application of this kind of technology for carbon fiber. See, I think that that's going to be one of those features that everybody sort of, you know, like when we had plastic valve covers and intakes and stuff come out, you know, everybody thought it was going to be a failure point, And I think it's not going to be, you know, there may be some, I, I some teething pains, but composites are material that are materials that automakers have been using for a very long time and they'll they'll figure it out and it will be a benefit you know who who wants to pick up truck with a bed that rusts out and that that is a significant problem so uh, i i think too it it's worth whatever the extra cost is to gm when you consider you can save 60 pounds there and put it elsewhere in the truck like that that's completely or, worth it or or add it right onto your payload rating yeah Either or. So uh, that seems like a pretty good win <laughs> to me. Um, I also, a, did yours have moving running boards? No, uh, I, um, hmm. I'm getting confused this, between that and I, the vehicle I've got this week. I, I don't think, think I think did. I'm pretty sure this is the truck that has the running boards actually will move backwards and which allows you to get into the truck bed that way as well. Oh, from is, the front. Oh, that's slick. Right. It's really, really cool. Yeah, it's really I, cool. I hadn't, I hadn't noticed that before. Huh. Yeah, it's just a slight movement back, and then you can get then into the truck. Because of course, egress and ingress is always my issue. <laughs> yeah, well, so. and and particularly, you know, with this truck, you know, one of the things when GM launched the um, the new Sierra and Silverado last year, one of the things they talked about is that the the bed sides are higher on this one compared to the previous generation, compared to most others. So you actually have more contained volume in the bed uh, because they, they raised the, the sides of the bed by, I don't know, three or four inches, something like that, you know, which also, you know, if you're coming in from the side, you know, does make it does, does make reaching in to grab stuff a little more challenging, no matter how tall you are. Yeah, right, it does. So the and that's this is the other thing, too. And I apologize if you hear Lucy in the background because she has decided to join us. Um, I, <laughs> Hi, Lucy. <laughs> so uh, getting in and out of the of the new Ram 1500 without the split tailgate, the only way that you can access that bed is through the license plate holder. It's outrageous. Yeah. I, 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 it, it was just something that was I, so mind-boggling to me that they have not they, made more advancements they do, there. They do, they do offer an optional uh, step, uh, retracting step on the on the rear that um, you know you can uh, you can put your foot on it, push it down, and well, uh, let you get up in there. I saw that with the split tailgate because I actually demonstrated that on on um, Fox Business and Fox and Friends or something for them. Uh, so I so. I used that to get in and out, but that was with the split tailgate. Does it come even without you the can split get, tailgate? You can get it with the conventional tailgate okay. as well. All right. The, the, the version, the, the 1500 that I had last year, I remember having it around Christmas time. I, it did not have it. And I complained yeah. bitterly to my friends there. And they were like, no, 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 it's coming. It's coming. So then went the Chicago Auto Show when they showed the split tailgate. Then that was one of the reasons I demonstrated it was because I was happy that they finally did something. It's you know the, I think we all benefit from the so the truck wars here. They're all good. This just comes down to which one you like. It does, <laughs> yeah. and 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 it pushes them to innovate, and you know which I think is a good segue to talking about innovative pickup trucks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you could have in mind. 
So shall I introduce our next topic? Well, I, I think, <laughs> oh, you, you know, we must. our our comment right before we recorded, I think, is sort of the most salient point here is that with one sort of amateur hour press conference and a vehicle that uh, seems rather slapped together, uh, they were able to erase a week of coverage from they the being Auto Tesla. Yeah, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah. So go go ahead. I just I thought that was amazing. Well, no, I just wanted to clarify who they were because we haven't actually verbalized it yet. Yeah. Well, the, now, the Tesla now we press conference yeah. showing their cyber truck. I think that was one of the more jaw dropping, inexplicable. This has to be a joke moments, <laughs> you know, that we've all had in a long time. It was uh, not what I was expecting. <laughs> what, what did you think, Sam? <laughs> well, let me just say, first of all, that, you know, <laughs> taste when it comes to design is is a very personal matter. Okay. You know, and there's no guarantee that any two people will have the same taste in the way things look or should look. And frankly, I think this thing looks absolutely ridiculous. I know there are those out there like Tim Stevens at CNET that disagree with me and think it's a very innovative design and, you know, should give Tesla credit for that. That's fine. I disagree strongly. I, I, I could, I would not want to be seen anywhere near this thing. It, well, so. Well, design aside, because it's okay to look weird. I'm yes. fine with that. Like, make the, the Lamborghini <laughs> Countach of trucks all you want. But um, the I've seen weird um, takes on it. Like, it's going to be cheaper to manufacture because it has flat stainless steel body panels. I I don't think so. First of all, I think once you well, get to stainless that point, steel is more expensive right. than than regular steel or um, aluminum. So you know, I I don't think that that's going to be true. Right and you don't ever want to be putting dead flat body panels on a vehicle. They have much less inherent rigidity because there's no radius. The rate the, the stamping them out to a radius gives them some, some stiffness. That's not there. If you just use a flat panel, that's just going to flap around. <laughs> like this is just a whole, whole host of reasons why that just doesn't ring true to me. But, but they demonstrated this to us that, that, you know, that that's not true for this one. Um, it's, it's as stiff as anything. Yeah. Uh, Franz, Franz von Holzhausen, you know, took a sledgehammer to the side and couldn't dent it. It was a dead blow hammer. And um, I, you know, that's just showmanship. Fine. And there's always spectacle to any car uh, introduction. So like those things that people are saying, well, it's not street legal. Yes, I, I get it. Uh, it doesn't look like it's been designed with that in mind. It's a concept car. And every automaker introduces concept cars that have various non-street legal aspects. So I, like... I get it. I don't want to. You know, I think that's that's not where we should put our energy right now. What I see is a fundamental problem with the, the Tesla Cybertruck is that uh, they don't seem to have spent any time trying to understand the truck market, the needs of the truck buyer. Like we were just talking about all of these things, right, with this this GMC truck, where the stuff that that makes it work when you're doing work. Uh, this seems like a Model S truck and it seems like the model s buyer is the person they're they're speaking to not anybody who has maybe a fleet of a hundred trucks for their business that might be looking to go ev and um you know it doesn't seem like they've thought about those needs or fleet service i i certainly wouldn't want to invest in 
even two of these and try to keep them up and running for fleet use uh, with Tesla's track record of initial quality and service and support. Like that seems like you're going to be buying another truck just so you can get to work. <laughs> so uh, I, I'll back off and just um, see what your impressions are. Uh, you know, either of you have any particular takes you, you'd like to share? <laughs> Why don't you go first, Rebecca? Okay. Uh, I think there's a couple things. You're absolutely right, Dan. I don't think that they've considered who buys pickup trucks and, and they often, you know, Tesla will refer to the millions of units that are sold every year. But as you say, we've just gone through that there is always that balance of beauty and functionality and utility, probably more so than any other vehicle. The reason that people purchase this, you know, purchase a pickup truck is for the most part to utilize its functionality. I do think that the bed was really cool with the built-in ramp. You know, the ATV was the best part of that show. Because <laughs> it was the know, Yamaha. Which apparently <laughs> may not have even been a Tesla built ATV. It looks, the, the reports online are, it uh, looks like it was based on a, an existing Yamaha ATV. And probably just spray painted black or something. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, I think that, again, like looking, trying to be somewhat objective, looking at what I did like about it. I thought that was a really cool feature to have the built in ramp. I don't think that it's a functional truck. I you know, when when the bed is covered, it looks like it covers the rear windscreen and having just talked about visibility. I think there's a lot of compromised visibility. I know that there's the camera, the rear view camera that many vehicles have today, particularly GM. I, well, it's I, mandatory now. I, no, the the rear view mirror that turns into a camera. Oh, that right. I don't know what there is. Is there a fancy name for that? But, you know, like the, just a, ca- a camera mirror system. Yeah, yeah. The, the GMC Sierra. Uh, it was the first time that I had ever seen that, and I found it to be super easy to use, but it was weird to not see the occupants of your vehicle then. And my understanding is that they don't have a toggle back for that. So you've got people in the back seat. You're not going to. That's something that will have to change because legally you have to have uh, a reflective mirror as well. Okay. That's that's. It's uh, so that's why all the, the ones that are out there now, the various GM models and, and some others now as well. They all they can all toggle between the reflective mirror and the the camera display. Well, and they should and all that's, toggle that's between a, that. You're right because you want you want that as a backup, um, you know, in case in case something goes wrong with the camera. Well, and it's also just the idea that you know sometimes it is helpful to be able to see, you know, to glance back and see people that are in the vehicle with you. So obviously, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's no side mirrors and, you know, the camera system, I, I drove, when I drove the Audi e-tron last December uh, overseas, we had the cameras, the side mirrors were cameras, which definitely took a little t- time to get used to, but eventually we did, you know, through the course of the day. So all these things that you can overcome. I I do like the fact that it has, you know, the leveling suspension and such. We saw that again, when they reloaded the ATV, that front end came up I mean, that was, thing was high and then it sort of, you know, it's self-leveled. So all those things are good. It's just that, you know, I think that you do have to have a fundamental understanding of the consumer that buys pickup trucks. And, you know, I can't see a, a rancher or somebody that uses this as a pickup truck, a contractor, 
using this as a pickup truck. It's not to say they're not going to buy them, but they wouldn't, they're not going to, this isn't going to be a work truck. Who do you think is going to be attracted to it? It's not attraction. It's it's not about the design, right? The design is very, very controversial, no doubt. But I can see, and God bless them, I can see contractors here in Greenwich pulling up to that thing. (laughs) With that thing. Because it's a talking point, right? And it shows how innovative they are. You'll you'll see see the the owner of the company. Yes, exactly. Not not like not 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 the not the electricians and the plumbers. Exactly. And not the trade. The the guy that owns the guy yeah, the guy that owns the company. Right. The guy that owns the company. And keep in mind too, you know, we went through this period of brutalist architecture. And, you know, look at Boston Town Hall, for God's sakes. It's considered one of the ugliest buildings in the world. City Hall Plaza is so good. If you looked at the other proposals, they they definitely picked the best one. (laughs) (laughs) That's a low bar. I don't know. I so the FBI. Well, the FBI, the Hoover Building in Washington, D.C., also brutalist architecture. So uh, this is a brutalist car. That's how it's designed. I I, and I appreciate brutalist architecture. Architecture, you know, you know, corduroy concrete and you, you make the materials part of the um, the design in a very, you know, sort of deliberate way. Uh, this. I, I for, for, you know, in terms of the concerns that you would have for a truck, the packaging seems to really suffer in, in this design because like that high peaked roof, you've got no rear headroom. Um, it, it just. You know, practically when, you know, part of the trick of designing anything is to fit around your actual functional parameters, right? Like if you're designing a truck, you've got to start with like, what is it going to be doing? And you, you design from the inside out, not from the outside in. Right. And then there's always that friction between engineering and design and nobody's going to get exactly what they want. But really the magic happens when they, they come together and everybody's satisfied with the compromises made in the, in the end product. Um they they talked a little bit about some of the capabilities and then, you know, the towing numbers seem good. Um, my concern is that there was emphasis put on the acceleration numbers, which are complete nonsense. Um, I, I don't, there are some people that care how quickly their trucks get to 60 miles an hour. I really don't think that's an issue. I think really what makes more sense is to talk about what, if any uh, modifications have been made to the, the, uh, the power uh, hardware, you know, the, the batteries, the, the cabling, the motors, um, and how, you know, how much it can tell, how long it can, how, how long it can do it for, you know, because we don't really have a good idea of how to measure that. Like, how long are you going to get useful work out of this electric truck? We, right. we haven't really been there yet, so we don't really know what the best way to measure that is. And, and they could have established that and saying like, this is useful to you because, you know, we limited the performance in terms of speed, but certainly more than adequate performance. And you get X amount of, of range, even while you're towing 10,000 pounds or, or something. And, and you know, I'm still, they, they, you know, Tesla has good, good power electronics, good batteries, good motors. But when you're trying to start off an extra 10,000 pounds on that, you know, you're going to put a lot of current demands on everything and current equals heat. And, you know, how have they, how have they done all that? I didn't get any of yeah, that. You know, to what you said about you know acceleration, for example, the truck that they showed was on these big knobbly off-road tires. Yeah, you know, and you know if you 
try to accelerate to, to 60 and 2.9 seconds on those tires, you're going to get, you know, one, maybe two launches off those tires before you start shredding them. Yeah. You know, so that's, you know, you can either have the off-road capability or you can have that kind of acceleration, but not both, you know, similarly with the towing, you know, it used to be up until about 2011, 2012 timeframe, you know, when you heard tow ratings from manufacturers, you know, from Ford and GM and Chrysler and, and anybody else, you know, they tended to be all over the map because there was no standard for towing. Um, you know, SAE developed a standard, a standard test, testing procedure for, for doing tow ratings, just as they'd have in the past with horsepower and torque and, and all kinds of other things. They de- that's, what, that's one of the things that SAE, the Society of Automotive Engineers, does. They develop standards that most of the industry adheres to. And, you know, that J2807 standard, you know, ever since then, you know, manufacturers test to that standard. And so now you can directly compare those tow ratings. My guess is that 14,000 pound tow rating we heard about the other night was not done to the J2807 standard. And, you know, if you, if you talk to Dan Edmonds, we'll have to get him on the show one of these days from Edmonds.com. No relation to the, the family that owns <laughs> Edmonds.com, by the way. But, you know, Dan, you know, does most of their, their testing. And he's done a lot over the last several years with Teslas. And, you know, has great respect for a lot of what Tesla does, you know, as I do from a, from a technical standpoint. But, you know, like he's done a lot of test, uh, tow testing with the Model X, you know, because it has a 5,000-pound tow rating. And, you know, if you look up some of the stuff he's, he's written on it, you know, basically, you know, even with a fairly small trailer hooked up to a Model X, like a less than 2,000-pound trailer, he was losing about, you know, at least half of the range of that vehicle uh, when towing. And, you know, this is one of the challenges when you're towing, you know, you do – you do have a significant degradation in efficiency, whether it's gas efficiency, you know, if you're towing with a uh, with a, a conventional truck or or range with an EV, you're going to lose a lot when you're towing because you're doing a lot more work. Your aerodynamics are a lot worse. And, um, you know, this is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, manufacturers, you know, all, all three of the domestic manufacturers have brought out um, diesel versions of their light duty trucks. You know, even though they are seen primarily as a, as a niche product, a relatively low volume product in the grand scheme of things. You know, like for Ford, I think they project you know diesel sales of the diesel F one hundred and fifty to be no more than about thirty to thirty five thousand units a year. For people that tow all the time, like say for example a landscaper. Uh, you know, that has to tow around, you know, a bunch of equipment, you know, a bunch of lawnmowers and, you know, all kinds of other equipment that, you know, they are towing on a daily basis. When you're towing with an EcoBoost F-150, you know, that 22, 23 mile per gallon rating that it nominally has, that drops to about 11 or 12 a lot of times. You know, same thing goes for, you know, a lot of the other trucks, even for for, for a V8 truck, you know, you you a gas V8, you lose a lot of fuel efficiency when you're towing. And one of the, the advantages that a diesel engine has is that under load, it actually has much less degradation in fuel efficiency under load. So if you're, you know, they targeted that truck at people that tow all the time, whether you're towing a horse trailer or, you know, a load of lawnmowers, you know, that's, that's something that is an advantage to those customers. And, what we've seen so far from from Tesla from the one ve- Tesla vehicle that can tow the Model X 
is that it it suffers from that same problem of you know basically cutting your efficiency in half or more when you hook up a trailer to it and you know i think that's going to be a real challenge not just for tesla but for all the manufacturers that are bringing out electric pickup trucks in the next couple yeah, of years well, i mean it takes your range from so if you have a 300 mile range now you have 150 and if it's hilly, right. you have less. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. depending on regen and stuff. But um, it also really stresses all of the the powertrain. So, you know, what what is the durability of that look like? And I don't know that that's been really comprehensively tested. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm less concerned about durability of electric trucks in general, uh, as opposed to, you know, maybe in the case of... Uh, of Tesla's trucks, we'll, we'll, we'll see, you know, they, most, most of them, most of Tesla's vehicles, you know, lo- they have more of a problem with reliability than durability. You know, they, things, you know, randomly stop working, but I think when they do work, you know, they, they tend to work for a long time, you know, um, you know, talking, you know, over the last couple of years, a couple of different times to uh, Rahul Sonad, a uh, guy who run, runs a company called Tesloop that uh, until recently, um, offered uh, inner city transportation services with a fleet of Model S's and X's, like between LA and San Diego and LA and Palm Springs. Um, you know, he's he had a couple of Model X's that you know racked up over three hundred thousand miles um, without too much difficulty. So you know, in general, an EV shouldn't be too much of a problem there. Um, but you know, again. You know, we haven't really seen it used in this kind of a use case, you know, with with consistent heavy towing. And so that may be putting more load on the batteries than they're than they're really up to, you know, depending on how you do your your temperature management in the battery. Right. And that's yeah, that's my it makes me scratch my head. I'm not overly concerned about it. It's certainly a solvable problem. I just wonder what it means. Yeah. But Rebecca, to what you were saying earlier about, you know, the way the truck is designed for, you know, for people for commercial users you know what do you know what do you think about commercial users and electric trucks in general and and more specifically the cyber truck so i love the idea of electric trucks in a fleet environment because they go back to the same station you know they go back to a specific charger they can you can set up a a place where these trucks are going to go back. I also like the, and I'm talking about like UPS, FedEx, the post office. I I also like the idea. Local operations I'm where sorry? they're not going long, local operations where they're not going straight far from home. Right. We're not talking long haul. We're talking, you know, planned routes. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I also like the fact that there, you on some level get the neighborhood effect. You know, you get the idea, like, you know, you talk to your you're a mailman, you or a mailwoman, you know, you have an electric truck now, you know, what do you think about that? You can kind of get that real world experience. So I think there's, and you also get around the whole, you know, the, the challenge with the consumer is, you know, is this better than what they have right now? And, and, you know, when we look at the Tesla truck or any of the other electric vehicles that are coming out, is it better? Does it solve the problem? of transportation and mobility and functionality better than 
what they currently have. And I think that in some cases with uh, with that local delivery, it could be, yes, you know, this, this could be better. Uh, when I think too of like what Ford has been able to do with some of their smaller vans, you know, it's been fantastic really because they were better than what delivery people were using before. So from that standpoint, I'm a fan. When I, you know, from, from a, of the technology itself, you know, the cyber truck is incredibly controversial, not because of the design, but because of that limited functionality. You know, again, we've spent some time talking about ingress and egress to the truck bed. Those sides are so high. Is that a functional truck. And that's what, you know, I don't think that they really were able to demonstrate effectively. And, you know, as far as when we think about the design, you know, the the way that vehicles are designed historically is because they had an engine in the front for the most part. But, you know, they usually have the engine in the front and you automatically get this long hood. And just because it's not there doesn't mean that you shouldn't design it as if it were, because again, that can be functional space. It doesn't have that frunk. It doesn't have the kind of storage uh, that that people need and want in their truck. But in terms of the technology, you know, you're absolutely right, Sam. Tesla, I love the fact that they always push the envelope. They always push, they have pushed the traditional automakers to be better, to to come out with vehicles that that are, you know, the challenge that that status quo that that you know are pushing them. Regulations are doing it as well, but I think that Tesla, with the range that they've been able to achieve, with the the historically beautiful vehicles that they've come out with the stupid falcon wing on the model <laughs> x doors notwithstanding <laughs> but you know they push the envelope they've they've the interiors are beautiful there's a, a you know there's an elegance to these products uh that up until the cyber truck you know tesla was known for it doesn't have to be ugly you know that's that was always the that was always the complaint with the with the Nissan Leaf and you know and and to the lesser the extent Prius, the, yeah. the Bolt uh, right and the Prius you know these are not attractive vehicles well that's Cybertruck you know <laughs> I, you know I, and you know to to be to be honest you know aside from the Prius most of those unattractive vehicles didn't sell in huge numbers either so. And, Right. Well, and that's what Tesla showed was that it doesn't have to have, you don't have to have this compromised design language. You can have a beautiful EV. And, you know, as you said at the very beginning, it's in the eye of the beholder. But I do think that most of the Tesla products are really elegant and and look, you know, they're distinctive and they turn heads in a positive way. I think the Cybertruck was a big misstep for them. And and a missed opportunity also, you know, when you see some of the some of the renderings of what it could look like, uh, it, it was just, you know, I think everyone was kind of waiting for the joke to end and the real truck to come out. Well, yeah, the what I haven't gotten from this is, you know, what's actually underneath it? How is it how is it built and engineered and, and what? Uh, of your existing technology and pieces and parts, have you leveraged for this? You know, um, how did you do any durability testing? You know, all the stuff that a normal automaker will 
sort of crow about when they introduce a new model. And so Tesla has been successful kind of in, in spite of its management. You know, all the the very hardworking people. I would say totally yeah, in spite of its management. just want that, you know, they want to succeed. I want them to succeed. What I'm very frustrated by is this just completely haphazard approach to uh, product development and announcements. And, you know, none of their cars really, uh, you know, they haven't built from platform to platform. They, they like each car is a distinct platform, at least uh, more distinct than than it should be. So they they're not, you know, they're not gaining efficiencies. Um, this doesn't look like they did any market research on who might buy it. Uh, so it like the people that are going to buy this. And I, I honestly don't think that this this truck has much of a chance of ever seeing the light of day. Uh, but if it does, the people who are going to buy it, they're going to cannibalize their own sales. These are these are Model S people who had trucks before, traded them for a Model S, and now want, you know, now there's a product for them. That's great. So they're not going to necessarily see a, a net increase in, in uh, you know, sales. There'll be some conquests, but really not, not too many. Um, so... I'm just I'm frustrated by the squandered potential. There is a, a lot of opportunity to do better. I want them to do better because they could they could kill it if they put their sort of their hearts and minds to it. And I just I'm just not seeing that this this looks like a, a vanity project that was very poorly considered. Um, so we'll we'll see where it goes. I don't want to belabor the point. Um but I, I want to know more about what's under the actual controversial bodywork. Well, and and to you know continue on the topic of the idea of an electric pickup truck, just in general, I would love to hear from people and the idea of you know do they see this as a potential work truck you know sam to your point i i had actually been discussing this on twitter with somebody about landscapers you know and the people that have to tow and such but there are other places that pickup trucks go that don't that aren't necessarily uh require towing and so you know is is the and of course the the electric range it all depends on the charging right it all depends on the charging infrastructure and stuff so um but can we get traditional pickup truck owners you know even if you get 1 or 2% of that population it's still a good number uh, you know that is this a, is this a technology that pickup truck owners can see eventually integrating into their lifestyle i i think that you know especially for commercial users i think that there's actually a huge opportunity for electrification uh, in trucks, because you know, for for commercial users, you know, for for the average consumer, you know, you tend to drive twelve to fifteen thousand miles a year. And as we've talked about before, going electric from a purely economic standpoint doesn't necessarily make sense. You know, in terms of the fuel savings you're going to get in going electric, um, the the numbers don't necessarily add up. But um, for commercial users that often, you know, are going seven, you know, driving 75 to 100,000 miles a year in a lot of applications, now the operating costs of using that vehicle make up a much larger proportion of the total cost of ownership. And, you know, if you're going from $250, $3 a gallon, or, you know, if you're in California, 4 bucks a gallon for gas to, you know, electricity, you know, at depending again where you are, anywhere from 
10 to 30 cents a kilowatt hour, now all of a sudden, you know, your operating costs potentially get slashed pretty dramatically. Uh, and that that makes a, a, a big difference for commercial users. So, you know, it, it you know, depends on how much the upfront cost premium is, but it's, you know, that cost premium is, is, has been shrinking and, and will continue to shrink. Uh, so I think that for a lot of commercial users, I think that they're, you know, if they're driving, you know, let's say, you know, 100, 150 miles a day, uh, you know, you know, doing, you know, whatever their, their application is, it, again, it depends a lot on the application. Um, but I think that there's a lot of opportunity there to, um, you know, to get some pretty significant cost savings by going to electric. And, you know, there, there's some, some things that you can utilize. You know, I mean, one of the things that, that Musk talked about was the ability to, uh, you know, utilize the, you know, the battery to power, power your tools on a job site. And this is something that Ford has talked about with the, uh, the F-150 hybrid that's coming out next year is, you know, it, for uh, contractors and, you know, other, other um, users that, you know, have to use power tools or charge power tools on a job site where there may not be electricity available, you know, they can use that, you know, today they, they have to haul along a generator in their truck. So that's one more piece of equipment they're bringing along. With the F-150 hybrid, they'll be able to use the hybrid, uh, the hybrid electric motor as a generator to power their tools. So that, you know, that simplifies it. And that's going to be a more efficient and cleaner system, even if they have to keep the, the gas engine running uh, along there. That's going to be more, still going to be more efficient than a typical gas generator that they have to bring along. So I think that there's some significant opportunities for electrification in the commercial market. But to take advantage of that, you really have to have a design that meets the needs of those same users you know, think a design that they can, you know, most of those users, you know, do various upfitting, you know, they'll put tool racks and various other equipment on their, um, on the trucks, you know, for whatever it is they're hauling, uh, that, you know, that makes it easier, you know, for them. And, you know, most of that equipment is standardized. You know, if you look at trucks today, you know, they have slots in the bed to, to put racks and various things in tie downs. And, you know, this is something that it, with the design of the Cybertruck could be a lot more challenging. Now, I think that there's there's absolutely there's opportunity in the commercial space. And I love the idea of using the available battery on a job site. I think that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's it reminds me of you know being able to use a power wall or a second source mm -hmm. uh, when you lose electricity in your house. So I think that there's that's why, as, as Dan said, it's frustrating because this could have been really, really good. And I don't think that they respected the opportunity and and that's something that is frustrating. It's it's not to say that they're not going to fix it or they won't they won't get better. You know, Tesla won't get better in time. But as you say, there's there's a ton of opportunities here, and so I do think that it's a, it's a real space and it's a it's a it's a real place where I can see a lot more hybrids and a lot more electric vehicles out there in the marketplace. Oh, it's a uh, huge soon. potential market. Yeah, I, th I think that it there's is. a lot of, um, you know, for whatever you might think about uh, folks who, who you know, the, the sort of trucking audience, trucking uh, a customer, I think they're ready to go EV when it makes practical sense for them and it doesn't 
really cost them that much extra and it's reliable and you know it's, I, I think like sam was saying i think that f-150 is going to do great when it goes hybrid and plug in <laughs> well, well it's a trusted brand yeah, absolutely too. and and you know um the those buyers you know they'll be able to reuse a lot of the the extra equipment you know that they use in their trucks today you know oh. in that in that hybrid and then in the electric version as well when it comes out and on thursday uh thursday morning you know mary barrow was talking at a conference in new york uh, she's the ceo of gm and she confirmed that you know the gm's electric pickup will be out in the second half of 2021. The Ford uh, F-150 electric should be out in, the, in roughly the same time frame. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ford is also doing an electric version of the Transit. You know, this was something that came out of their uh, their UAW contract. Uh, you know, their, oh, that's going to be excellent. Their third EV Which is, fantastic. is going to be an, elect, an electric Transit, and that's the vehicle that's going to be running on the Rivian platform. Most that's yeah. the vehicle that's, that's going I love to that idea. get, like, so widely adopted. I mean, think of all the... Yes. the yeah, I mean, Amazon's running, well, I guess they're running uh, Fiat's, but either way, like, yeah. So there's a lot to that market that I feel is, is untapped. And, and I I think that the sort of the legacy or quote unquote old line automakers um, who have fleets much more figured out are going to be the ones that, that crack that wide open. And, and it's actually going to make them money. It's my prediction. But Silicon Valley tech bros will love the Cybertruck. Yeah, that that's fine. So they can sit in traffic. If they can find if they can find a place to park yeah. it. Well, they'll just park it on top of all the proletarian. Anyway. <laughs> Moving on. Let's move on before we get too angry. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, uh, so it was LA last week, right? It was the LA Auto Show. That did happen. Yeah. Um, I was there for a whole yeah, week. How was it? Uh, it was interesting, you know, there, it was it, like a lot of other recent auto shows, there was less big news that came out of it, you know, th less, fewer announcements, you know, than we had heard prior to the show, uh, that came out of it, but there were, there were a few interesting tidbits. Um, you know, one, one that came out actually right after, uh, was Volkswagen in Germany. Uh, so it's not actually related to the show, but Volkswagen announced that they are, um, canceling all their internal combustion engine motorsports programs and going all electric with their motorsports programs and electrification, as we've just talked about, was really, you know, the big theme of LA as it has been to varying degrees for the last several years. Um, but, uh, you know, Audi showed off the e-tron Sportback, which is, uh, uh, a different styled version, essentially of the same vehicle that, that we've already driven the, uh, the wagon, SUV type uh, e crossover electric. Yeah, the, I love the e that GT. I think it looks awesome. Would, well, this is not this is not the GT. This is the Sportback. So oh, the GT is coming next year. They confirmed the production GT will be out by you know by the end of next year. That's the one we saw as a concept in, last year in LA. Right, but the one and they showed in LA, the, I think, looks great. Right. So the the GT is based on the the Taycan. The Sportback uh, is based on the e-tron Quattro that we already have. Uh, but, you know, with a, a slope back, you know, coupe-like X6, you know, BMW sort of X6 feel. fastback yeah. uh, design. And I spent some time talking with Matt Mustafi, uh, who's the manager of electric vehicle programs at Audi of America. And um, they actually did make some changes. Uh, so it's it's mainly based on the existing e-tron, which, by the way, is now just called e-tron. It's not... Uh, so like, like the original Quattro Coupe back in like 83, which subsequently became known as the Ur Quattro among fans, you know, Ur 
meaning um, original or uh, primitive. Uh, the e-tron that we have now is essentially the Ur e-tron, and all the ones coming forward will have some suffix on them, like sportback, uh, to distinguish them. Um, so one of the, the big complaints about the current e-tron is its range is too short. For you know, given the size of the battery it has, you know, because Audi went very conservative, they're not using the full capacity of the battery, they only use 88% of the battery in the e-tron. For the Sportback, they've made some changes. It's going to be they've made some changes to the power electronics, to the battery management system. They're now bumping that up to 91% of the battery will be used. Uh, and the expectation is that the range will probably be somewhere around 215 to 220 miles, uh, which is still not great, but it's better than the 204 that the current e-tron gets. Right. Um, but one of the really cool things, which unfortunately we will not get on ours because it's a regulations, is the, the lighting system on there. They, the e-tron Sportback has these matrix LED lights that do all kinds of wild and crazy <laughs> things. It basically has a, uh, if, if you remember uh, old uh, projection TVs, uh, with their DLPs, the little micro mirror yep. systems, yeah. um, it, basically using the same kind of mechanism. It's produced by uh, Texas Instruments, a little micro mirror system in front of the LEDs. And it's, I think it's uh, 1.3 megapixel lighting pattern that they can do. You know, and so you can control the, the, the light pattern dynamically. Uh, so one of the things that it can do, for example, is as you're driving down the road, your high beams, you know, if you're on a, you know, dark road, you know, there's nobody else around. You got your high beams on so you can see more of what's around you. Um, when it detects a car coming towards you, uh, it can automatically <clears throat> mask out the portion of the view where that car is. So instead of shining the high beams on that approaching car, you get the high beams all around it, but not on that car. So you don't blind the oncoming driver, things like that. Uh, another thing that That's they showed cool. us that they demoed is, um, you know, when a, if a pedestrian is detected, it can actually cast essentially, you know, a, a light up that pedestrian so you can see the pedestrian better. Um, you know, it can uh, project uh, little chevrons on the road where the lane markings are to, to give you more guidance, you know, where you should be, things like that. Uh, so there's all kinds of neat things that they can do with it. But of course, those lights aren't legal here <laughs> in the U.S. yet. So it sounds maybe like someday we'll get cool lights, but not now. And will they also help with uh, autonomous driving or autonomous features? Yeah. So, yeah. For, you know, those, those same, that same kind of technology can be used for autonomous vehicles because you can actually project messages right on the road, um, you know, so, you know, to signal the intent of the vehicle. So if the vehicle, you know, is is not going to be moving you can you know put parked or stopped uh you know if the vehicle you know before the vehicle starts to move you can say you know vehicle about to move or you know some some sort of short message there so that pedestrians and other road users can see get an idea of what you know what the vehicle's intent is uh you know so projecting those kinds of messages and it's a very high resolution uh control system and it, it worked really well for the for the demo that's really cool it's very clever yeah. And, yep. and it worked for the demo, unlike some other demos that we saw this week. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, nothing broke. Uh, it all it all worked as intended. Uh, so <laughs> that was good. Uh, no, no broken glass. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but of course, it, you know, they didn't have a designer throwing steel balls at the at the at the headlight sure, clusters. So that that is the one the one downside to these fancy headlight systems 
is that, you know, if you do get into a fender bender and, and, you know, have to replace that headlamp cluster, you're not talking about like a $6 bulb. Yeah. <laughs> that's pricey. Those, they, they didn't, they didn't talk about the pricing, but you know, the parts, parts, parts prices, but you can bet these things are going to be really expensive to replace if you get into a little accident, but hopefully you get into fewer accidents because you can see better. Exactly. It all works together. Yeah. And it, you know, it's lighting technology is something that really it's, it's fascinating. It seems boring, but it's something that we really should have better lights on the road. Uh, although I was, I've been struck by the last few vehicles I've driven with halogen lights. Um, and you know, a good halogen system, um, but you know, lamp and reflector, they're only 55 Watts or 60 on high beams. Like that's, that's not a lot of wattage, but if they're designed well, they really, they put the light in the, in the right place and they can actually be surprisingly better than a lot of the HID or, or um, LED systems that are out there. It's just what throws you off, I think, is that they look, um, they have that more uh, sort of orange color temperature um, right. where the, the newer systems, they burn at, at daylight, which is, you know, 5,600 Kelvin. So um, they, they look maybe brighter because they're whiter, but they actually, they have a patchy crappy beam pattern and it's all down to beam pattern. So yeah, the the better you can, the more light you can put on the road and keep it there, the better. I'm really fascinated by how these these new lights can just they can sort of make, basically make a dot of darkness and track it, and and just you know keep the rest of the road illuminated that brightly for you. That that's amazing to me. Yeah, it it is pretty cool. The other place I've noticed the lighting is in the rear view ca- in the in the um, backup camera. So on that Mazda, the Mazda three, the backup camera was so bright it it provided fantastic light for you know nighttime backing up i have a hyundai santa fe uh, and i was in my sister's driveway so exactly the same driveway last night and i was like wow this is not nearly as bright as the mazda was yeah that 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 can be a challenge you know um you know it's great having these backup cameras but you know if you're not lighting up the area where the camera is looking at it's not really very helpful to you yeah i was really i was kind of taken aback but again the mazda had it was definitely brighter and i had her driveway isn't tricky it's just you know it's at night and you want to when you put the car in reverse you're expecting it to be a certain amount of light there and uh and the mazda did a really really nice job of that and i've been i was I was surprised and obviously I talk about the Hyundai more next week, but I was a little disappointed in the, with the Hyundai Santa Fe. It also sits up higher, but it still was just not as bright. I don't know. I was, but that's something that I, you know, I, I've seen a big difference and a lot of variation in the brightness and effectiveness of the lighting in a rear, in a backup camera. Not something that's talked about every day. <laughs> no, but it is something we do a lot. So, you know, it's it's important. What else did you see in LA? Um, one, other, one other one that I wanted to talk about um, is the Hyundai Vision T concept. Uh, you know, we saw, you know, there was a lot of emphasis on electrification, like I talked about, you know, a lot of EVs. There was the, the Volkswagen ID Space Vision wagon, which is coming in 2022. We built in Chattanooga. Um and uh, you know, uh, BMW showed the Mini E, which is launches uh, in the U.S. Uh, early in 2020. Um, but the uh, the Vision T is pretty cool because it it shows um, the next generation of Hyundai's design language. You know where they're going with their design language, which is a little little bolder. Uh, and this is you know 
seen as kind of a preview of where the um, the Tucson, the next generation Tucson is going, uh, probably in about uh, 18 months or so. And there's some interesting stuff about, you know, aside from the aside from the, the basic design, if you look at photos of it, you know, when it's off, it looks like there's no headlights on the front. You know, you've got this kind of diamond pattern. Um, oh, on that's the front. crazy. Yeah. But in fact, um, there's there's some technology that they're using there, which is actually already on the 2020 Sonata, um, which is going on sale uh, shortly. And on the on the Sonata, if you've seen the new Sonata, you know, when it's off, it looks like there's a chrome strip on either side that extends up from the, the headlamp cluster and runs along the edge of the, the crease of the hood on either side and runs to the base of the A-pillars. But the front section of that, the front portion of that, is when it's off, it looks like it's just a chrome strip, but it's actually an, an electrochromic coating on the back of the plastic. So it's like a one-way mirror. So when you light up behind it, it lights up like a light. And that's what they're using as the headlights on this on this uh, Vision T concept, which is, is really neat. So, you know, you get this these wild looking lights on it and, um, you know, it, it it's a great design, I think. But, you know, and then when it's off, it just, you know, kind of blends in, uh, you know, with the, with the grill. And uh, it's it's quite, quite unique. I don't think it's going to be legal for headlights, as, as we've already talked about. Uh, but at least, you know, they're able to use it for things like daytime running lamps and, and other stuff, you know, to kind of hide it. Uh, and then when you when you turn it on, it, it, it you know, gives you gives you some unique, you know, some interesting design possibilities. That's very cool. I think it, it, yeah, it, yeah. Hyundai design is just stunning. They're doing so yeah. good. Uh, just, I mean, that thing looks, I, I don't know what, what this design language is going to sell for, but you can bet it's going to be from like the twenties up to the fifties, right? It looks like a million bucks. It's just so, so classically, uh, refined and, and handsome. I just, you know, it, they have clearly made the investment and they're letting the investment actually, you know, they're not getting in the way of it. They're not micromanaging it. They're, they're really letting right. the guys that they hire do their thing. And it's, it's paying off. Their cars are just, just beautiful. Yeah, no, they're, they're doing some good stuff. Oh, and one other one um, just to, to bring up as well is from the other side of the Hyundai Motor Group um, family, uh, Kia, uh, also introduced a new small crossover called the Seltos. No electrification on this one for now, uh, but it's you know it's their uh, a new compact crossover that slots in just below the the Sportage. Um, it's not as small as the Kona. It's it's actually about the same size as the current Sportage. Uh, and what James Bell from Kia told me is that the the next gen Sportage is going to get a little bit bigger than where it is today. It's going to move a little more upmarket. But this you know like a lot of the other um, recent, you know, compact crossovers we've seen, like the, the Hyundai Venue, the uh, the Nissan Kicks, um, less less so the Kicks, uh, but you know what they're doing with this one, you know, is trying to make them more affordable to consumers, and they're they're doing some interesting stuff with this, um, you know. So you know, it's it's like I said, it's a little bit bigger than the Venue uh, and the Kicks, but it's going to start at like twenty two thousand dollars. Wow. And twenty two thousand dollars for the base model That's is with all wheel drive. Amazing. 
Huh. That's a great and, price point. Yeah, actually, if if you if you want uh, if you want front wheel drive, it's actually going to be in a slightly more premium trim level, a slightly higher price. So the base model, you know, unlike the Venue and the the Kicks, which don't offer all wheel drive at all, this one actually has standard all wheel drive for twenty two thousand dollars. And <laughs> and and for that for that price point, you know, it's actually got a Twist. you know like like modern Kias, you know, it's got a really nice interior. Uh, you know, really nicely executed. It, it looks like it, this could be a real winner. Yeah. Well, you know, Luke Dockenwolk, I think that's how you say it. I mean, he's done a great job at leading up Hyundai and Kia and Genesis design, along, of course, with Peter Schreier, which is, who's legendary. But they've got a fantastic group there designing these products in Korea. The, I mean, these guys are so international in, t- in terms of their mindset and their and where they grew up, you know, there's another designer, Sung Yip, he's Korean. And, and so you've got, you know, this mix of cultures, uh, but with a lot of, they, they have a clear vision of where they want each of these brands individually to go. And I think that we're really starting to see their design language coming into play. And it's one of the reasons why the products are getting better and better. I think Luke's been there since 2015 or so. So we're just, you know, really starting to see uh, his vision come to light. Yeah, I think there's some, there's some great stuff there, and it's um, looking forward to seeing what else comes out of the Hyundai Motor Group. Aside from that new grill on the the Genesis G90, which oh my gosh, know. that thing is enormous. Yeah, you know the size what? of an like, apartment. Overall, I, I G90 still looks good. I like what they've. It almost has a little bustle back to the trunk too. But I, I think that they've, uh, you know, everything they do looks looks tasteful. I, yeah, it's a big girl, but I mean, you know, I also, I'm not anywhere near as offended as everybody else is by the new BMW X7. I think that thing looks fantastic on the road. So whatever. Big gr- yeah, I think that thing's fabulous yeah. on the road. The big girls, big girls have happened before and they'll happen again. Yeah. Like, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that we've covered a lot of ground uh, and we're, we're edging towards two hours. So we should probably uh, call it a podcast. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Sounds good. All right. Well, we'll catch uh, everybody. Please definitely send us individual hello world emails so we can (laughs) with all the information (laughs) and we'll talk to you next week let us know if there's anything uh we missed you want to talk to us about and uh we'll go from there all right thanks all right thanks Bye. bye